So we are going to continue in the New Testament book, the letter to the churches of Galatia. I mentioned this two weeks ago when we began, we we're in chapter one, that we're going to, it's actually, I'm referring to it as the gospel revisited, because we have looked at this here in the recent past in this particular book. So what we're going to do by approach, um, we're going to do a flyover. Uh, some years ago, I was invited to go in a, to a backcountry airstrip, and I just love riding in planes. I, I love two parts for commercial planes, takeoff and landing. The rest is really kind of an inconvenience, but I, I, just, I think it's the adrenaline factor, maybe, who knows? But I also love small planes, because there's something exciting about getting tossed around and free-falling and all this other stuff that happens. And I know Kim thinks I'm psycho, but I, there's, I just... I just love the ride. Well, I got to fly into Johnson Creek, which is kind of an elite, or not elite, well, it's just a major size backcountry strip. It's bigger than most. I got to fly in there with a group called Idaho Friends of MAF. MAF is Mission Aviation Fellowship. They fly all around the world. Wonderful organization. Well, while we're there, I got to then sign up and go on another flight from there to pilot candidates were flying these backcountry strips, which ironically, they were just a dirt road that they called an airport, seriously, and they were training them to go all over the world. Well, I got to fly and go in, so I'm backseating it, of course, and they come into the area, and then they make a circle over the airport, quite a ways up above it. They're getting an overview of it, and then they do one more a little lower, and then they did one just right down the strip, for the way you're going to take off to make sure they're, you know, they're just kind of assessing it. So to me, it was exciting to, to kind of be a part of that. But it gave me also kind of a picture of how it is when we study the Bible sometimes. You know, we do most frequently and quite regularly, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. We just read through it. But let's not think that that's the only way you can absorb and receive the Word of God. Sometimes you need to survey. You need to fly over it, get a sense of the, the, the letter, if you would, and then come back and kind of like land on the ground and walk around and look deeper and, and open it up and see what you find. So today will be more of a flyover of chapter two. You'll have the opportunity even this week, of course, to dig in and read not only the chapter, I encourage you to read this letter throughout the week. You can be digging into it, getting a sense of the context, looking in even closer to the chapter. And if you find things when you dig into that, that you're like, hmm, Pastor Dan didn't touch on this verse. He, he didn't connect on that one. Well, if you find those for a reference, for one tool you could use, is you can go to our website, and in the little uh, menu box on the top right, if you click on that, and then go to sermons, and then from sermons, you go down to free at last. So when you're on the sermon page, just scroll down and you'll come to this one, Galatians, free at last. I went through Galatians chapter by chapter, verse by verse in 2020. So you can go back and kind of fill in the blanks if that's a tool you find beneficial. So then you, you see what I'm saying? I know I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. You didn't come to church to get homework. <laughs> but actually you did. Because you knew this isn't going to carry you through the week. This is just a taste, a bite, like, oh, now I'm going to need a little more throughout the week. So I encourage you to dig in in that regards. As we look this letter over, we'll continue with what I presented in chapter one, that there's three points that I, whether you call them points or ingredients or elements, I don't know. But there's three things that I believe they're a really important process in our spiritual life and growing. Because see, if you read the Bible and I read the Bible, and it's just fuzzy and sweet and nice in these friendly faces, but it doesn't change our Sunday night, it doesn't change our Monday, it doesn't affect the rest of our week, what good did it do? It should be practical. It should be literally, as the word we'll see today, trans transforming. It should change us because of what we're embracing and choosing to live by. So here's some three, th three things that I think you'll see essential when you read through, and even this letter, we'll see it consistently. These three things, you'll see the truth, you'll see the trouble, and you'll see the transformation. There's three parts always seem to come, come into play when we want to be practical and real as we dig in. So let's just pray one more time. God, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you have preserved it perfectly. Everything that we have, Genesis to Revelation, everything that pertains to life and godliness, you've preserved for us perfectly. Nothing's missing. Nothing got removed by man. For you are perfect in preserving your words. With that in mind, Lord, we believe you're also perfect in showing us how to walk according to your truth, according to who and how and what, according to you, God. And so, Lord, we've come before you today with some with heavy hearts, some with hurts, some with confusion, some with life difficulties, some with great gladness. You know the mix. You know what we're going through. Thank you, God, that you will make your word come to life. I pray, God, that you would use my voice, you'd use me in some way to convey your truth, to plant and embed it upon the hearts of those who would hear for your glory, God. That where there's heartache and hurt, you'd bring comfort. Lord, where things are a little cloudy, you'd bring clarity. Where there's fear, you'd bring hope. God, that you would just touch our hearts, for we believe that's your desire. We believe, God, that you are faithful. We believe, God, that you who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in our lives individually and as you knit us together as a group collectively. We believe that you will do that. And so, Lord, teach us what it means to live by faith. Teach us what it means to trust you, to walk with you, to know you, God. Our hope is in you and you alone. Speak to us now this day, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's just jump into this Galatians chapter 2. Now, as I mentioned, I'm going to give a a bit of an overview. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, recounts how the vessel, Paul, Paul was a vessel. Paul was not bringing his word. Paul was an instrument that the word of God is poured into heart of God brought into the man, Paul, and then brought forth through Paul. It's still God's word. So Paul's recounting how he received the gospel, the revelation, this revealing of the truth from God. And he needs to remind the churches in Galatia that he's not a product of the Jerusalem church. See, the regions of Galatia, back in chapter 1, we're told this letter was wrote to various churches in a region, what we would call a Gentile or non-Jew region, where it's predominantly not Jewish population. And so what had happened is, you know, Paul, when he come to Christ, he was actually aggressively trying to interrupt the move of the, of the Spirit. You remember what was happening? He, he's down in Jerusalem. He sees this going on, what's happening, this conversation about what would later be called Christianity. So he proceeds to go north, get up ahead of it, get above it, if you would, and then move his way down and to cut this thing off and stop it. Because he was zealous for Jewish tradition. He was zealous for the things that he had, had grown up around. But in his zeal, he was actually contrary to God. And he had an encounter outside of Damascus, remember? The Damascus Road experience, where he functionally got blasted off his donkey because he was going against the will of God. And Jesus met him and literally revealed truth to him. And so the first part of this chapter talks about what he did in the coming almost you know, 15 years between his conversion or his experience in Damascus and then where, we're, where he's writing this. He needs to remind that Gentile, the church, that he's not simply a spokesman for Jerusalem. See, the early church, for at least the first 10 years, was predominantly Jewish. In Acts 10, which is about 10 years in since the resurrection of Christ and the ascension, in Acts 10, Peter's directed by God to take the gospel to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, And you read the story, remember the story of Peter and Cornelius, Cornelius being a Gentile, and how the Holy Spirit saved Gentiles, and he rocked, God rocked the early church. You you think about it, here's what's going on, and and there's some parallels we'll see, we'll see some application as we glance back in history and, and see things currently. Within the Jewish population, so you got Jewish background believers, 
So that, that was their background. Well, you have what I call residual religion. Residual religion is kind of what you have because it's what you, born, you grew up with. I have a background, religious you could say, I guess, with, with Mormonism. That's what I grew up around. That's my religion of reference. My wife was Jehovah Witness. Boy, we had a great start. And so I actually would associate myself differently. I was a seven-day recreationalist. So that was really more my religion, if you would. That's the thing I really went to and gravitated to. And so then I become a Christian, and I'm trying to make everything still work. So I basically, what I always say, it's a residual religion. It's where we try to insert what we used to be, believe into the born-again life. So think about it. When I was born again, I understood that I was a sinner. God made that known. In his grace, he brought humility enough that I would agree with him. I asked for forgiveness. I believed that Jesus was God. I didn't have all the answers. I still don't. But I believe he is God. And, and something happened. I, I Literally, I was born again, and I still looked the same. I kind of acted the same. So, but I, I was starting to grow as a Christian, as a person, new person. But I started bringing my old practices into the new life. And I said things like this, like, yeah, man, this is so awesome. I can, I can worship God in its creation. This, the mountains are my sanctuary. The, the getting away from all this and getting up on the hills, oh, that's where I'm to be. That wasn't because I had some theological breakthrough. It's because I didn't want to go to church. It's because I used to not go, and I was used to, you know, I love being in the hills, so how could I justify what I used to be in line with who I am currently, it's residual. Now, that's a real simple one. Some of you maybe even have more of what Paul dealt with and what the Jews dealt with, where there's this religious training, and it has some merit, but it's not to be preeminent. It's not to be the primary thing. And so we have to realize that this stuff we think sometimes just has to be set aside, and that's what was happening in the early church. They were, they were putting the emphasis upon being Jewish. Because after all, Jesus was a Jew. So therefore, if you're going to live and follow Jesus, who was a Jew, you need to be a Jew and then follow Christ because Jesus was a Jew. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. And so we're going to see as it's, we dig through this and unfold, Paul has to let them realize, I, I'm here to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's making known that he was not sent out by the Jewish background believers in Jerusalem but rather he was saved and sent by God. He's dependent upon the body of Christ. Interdependent, I should say. We're going to see in this first section, Paul, as we, he later would be the instrument to write in Ephesians, Paul endeavored to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He, he understood there was a need for unity within the body of Christ. So let's look at verse 7 through 10. Like I say, I give you the background on verses 1 through 6 and some of the things that were happening and how he's reconciling. He's went to, he's in Jerusalem. He's meeting with the leaders in Jerusalem. And this is kind of what happens at the close of that meeting. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, that's kind of that Acts 10 I referenced, Verse 8, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only desi the desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. So we see unity and diversity strengthened through difficulty. So there's a unity here, but there's a, a, a true meaning of diversity, not the silly definition that's contemporarily thrown around in really weird ways. But true diversity, where there's diverse, where there's, you know, the Jewish background believers and Paul being Jewish, but then he also has this amazing ministry to the non-Jews. And they're recognizing, hey, there's, what's the similarities? What do, what's our foundation? What's our common ground that we all hold on to? So as Paul 
went to them. We can see humility. We can see their willingness to stay true to what is the important elements, the, the majors, if you would. They give them, it says in this passage, that they extended the right hand of fellowship. It's basically saying, okay, you guys, we, we see where you're coming from. See, that, this was not an easy issue because this is a confrontation, agreed? As calm as it is in this first portion, it's as near as we can conclude, you know, they, they had to sit together face-to-face and work out what's going on here, what's happening. And Paul's very delicately saying, if you would, um, this is the gospel. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to. And by being a Jew, they were putting the emphasis on not only circumcision, the right of Moses, and then also the following of the law, then then your faith in Christ. See, he's like, that, that, it's faith in Christ alone, as you're going to see it as we unfold this. So here they're working it out, and they're, you know, confrontations are always difficult. Agreed? They're just not, they're not avoidable. You can't go around them. Let's continue on, because this goes from this public, well, more of a private kind of engagement, but it seems to be fairly simple. Let's move on to verse 11. Now, when Peter, this is a different situation. They just talked about how they engaged in Jerusalem and dealt with a doctrinal issue that was practically expressed. So how do they now deal with another one that's in Antioch, which is really more non-Jews. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So, I would just title this section, Awkward. Real awkward, in a very true, very real relational way, but necessary. Back in verse 2, which we didn't look at, but back in verse 2, Paul talks about when he met some leaders there in Jerusalem, and he engaged with them privately. In other words, he's like, listen, let's, let me talk to them before we get in the whole crowd scene. Let's kind of reconcile, work, see where we're at on this stuff. And they got it worked out. But now we see Paul addressing something publicly. Because he realizes it must be done publicly. And I believe the reason why was Peter was one of the leaders in the early church. He was very influential. He was very influential. He was technically, almost by default, or maybe by declaration, he was the leader of the apostles. And not that Jesus assigned him, but he was just, he was the guy that spoke up frequently. Sometimes he shouldn't have, but nonetheless, he spoke up. His actions in this situation were public. And because they were public, I believe it had to be dealt with publicly. Because the way he carried himself in a gathering, it couldn't just be, hey, Peter, let's talk about this over here. Because he had actually set aside some who were Christians but didn't have a Jewish background. He hung out with them, ate with them, met with them, treated them as brothers. But then when the word came that the Jerusalem leaders that were coming from, from James, you know, not that James sent them, but this whole Jerusalem scene with the Jewish emphasis, when they're coming, Peter sets this group aside and starts hanging out with these guys implying that you guys are secondary when the Jews show up. So you see what a problem is happening really fast? I want to look at something, though, that's not just the historical side, but the practical side. There's three common problems that are revealed in this situation that I believe have apply in our, apply in our lives personally. I believe they're a real issue in the world, the church, and in the place that you and I occupy in human history as well. Let's consider these three things in regards to this confrontation and these difficulties. We see in verse 12 that they were pleasing men rather than honoring God. It says that they were fearing those who were of the circumcision. So he understood this is kind of what's going on. Peter and some of the others that were in the kind of the influential part of leadership, and even Barnabas getting drug into it. 
they were afraid of what others would say, specifically those with the Jewish background. And we don't know why. We're not told whether there was some kind of threat coming from Jerusalem. There wasn't a, a, a denominational type structure that would require some type of interaction, but there was something going on. For whatever reason, they were not honoring God. They were concerned about pleasing men. And you know, that happens today, maybe as much as it did then. It happens in the church corporately in the global sense. It can happen in a local sense. And it happens every day, I believe, at least the potential is there in a personal sense for every one of us. They would be more concerned about what people might say than really what God has said. Think about this. We know Peter heard from God. We know that he's heard from God in various ways. We've seen it not only in his interaction with Jesus, when Jesus even said, the Father has shown you this. So we know he's heard from God. We know he, he was the one that God used as an instrument on that day of Pentecost to bring a powerful message, and, and thousands were saved. So we know he listens to God. But we also know he was not listening on this issue. And that may be the issue that's more practical for you and me. We may listen on one thing or a certain thing, but we may kind of close our ears in another area. And God's not making that known to you and me to kind of make us feel small or, you know, rebellious. He's doing it to liberate us. Because if we embrace something that's contrary to him and we start finding our identity in these things, next thing you know, we're going to be walking further from him. And now he's showing, listen, you know, be careful. Don't be concerned or consumed about pleasing men. It's one thing to respect someone. It's entirely different to please them. Does that make sense? You can have respect and engagement and interaction and understand maybe where they're coming from. But if it gets to where I'm more concerned what they think than what God has said, do you see what's happening? Now we find ourselves in a very compromised position. And it leads to the next part in verse 13, playing the hypocrite. Because what would happen is they were concerned what they said, so we don't want to unset them, so we'll just try to be both. So have you ever tried to be two people? Because I have a hard time being me. And when I try to be me and then the other me or a different me or some other part of me, it's exhausting. It just wears you out. Because you don't yet remember who you're with to know what to be. And it's like, it's just too confusing. The hypocrite's interesting. It's a term or word in the Greek, when, you know, where this is sourced from is, as far as the New Testament, it's interesting. It's, it's taken from theater, from acting, from, from plays. And they would hold a, a, just a, a, a face, a little thing on a, a little paddle, if you would. And they had a face there. And then they could turn it around to be a different face. And in some situations, they could use their own face. So it was a way on the stage to be one person. And then turn it around and be another person. Maybe change tone of voice or language or vocabulary a little bit. And do you see how that fits beautifully in description of the Christian life? That sometimes we find ourselves, you know, trying to be somebody else, turning it around for a different person. And playing the hypocrite, it's just exhausting. You never do either one of them well. Correct? You find yourself just getting wore out. And what's interesting is so often when we consider these things like, pleasing men or playing the hypocrite. So often, this is fascinating. We can think of somebody else who does that. I'm thankful you're not looking around at this point going, oh, he's that guy over there. See, isn't it easier to think, oh man, I know somebody. There's, I, got a, oh, I got a coworker. What a hypocrite. Forget it. Get your face in the mirror and study that one. How many does you have? How many do you flip around? It's so important because this is not meant to somehow push us down, but liberate us. Paul is saying to the very early church, because some people have said this to me, man, I wish the church today is like the early church. Kind of looks the same to me. A lot of similarities. Not a lot. Is okay. So check this out. We have pleasing men rather than honoring God. That's a problem. We have playing the hypocrite. The third thing we can see from this text in verse 14, they were not true to the gospel. See, these outward expressions are one thing, but they really weren't true to the gospel. It says that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Ultimately, I believe what you see there is they were saying, well, we can do it because of this. 
See, any time we start making excuses, we're really, really taking some chances. And I believe what would happen is they were making excuses to why their, what is really disobedience or deception, it was okay. And maybe the, we could apply, this is how I would say contemporary phrases that are similar in some cases. Well, it's not like you think. You see, it's, it's, it's different for me. Or God understands my heart. All those things are what? They're explanations. Actually, I think they're explanations which lead to excuses. I can explain it, which excuses me from applying it, which means I can be exempt from the principle. And so often that happens. I don't mind explanations. They're healthy. Let's not let them become an excuse why I don't have to do something and then exempt me or you, any one of us, from a truth we should be living by. Because if it can happen to these guys who've seen the risen Lord, who walked with Jesus, I'm pretty sure it could happen to any one of us. We could find ourselves given in to these various problems that end up in, in needing some pretty significant correction. Because ultimately, Paul, in addressing these things, dealing with the awkward, he's actually protecting a truth. He's defending a truth. Let's consider what that truth is. It's found in verse 16, which is interesting because in verse 16, he talks about this gathering of people, this confrontation that was awkward. And as he was working through it and explaining, hey, Peter, come on, you couldn't pull it off as a Jew. Why are you putting that pressure on the Gentiles? It'll do what you couldn't do as a Jew. What are you thinking? Here's the truth. Verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Here, that's the truth he's defending. God give him the wisdom and insight to see if we start down this road, it'll take us away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It'll add to it. He had this insight to see these actions of the, the believers and even the leadership revealed what they believe. Because see, I believe our actions do show what we really believe. I believe that when we um, realize that and we start thinking about it and we understand, we, if we believe we're saved by faith in Jesus, then our lives will reflect that belief. Peter and Barnabas and the others mentioned here They'd placed their faith in Christ. The problem was they were approving, um, even uh, supporting false teaching. A teaching that's still active and dangerous today. What is the false teaching? I'll put it in this one simple category for this particular passage of Scripture. It's the gospel plus. The gospel plus. The gospel plus what? Plus anything. If it's plus, it ends up it's not good news. Gospel means good news. And if you add to it, all right, now you have to do this. It's, that's a form of deception. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. No add-ons, no addendum, addendums, no amendments. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And you, you know the argument. Some of you have shared it. I've said it. I understand some of the arguments. And they're not arguments to take us away from the gospel. They're things to go, yeah, but what about? What about what? Well, you're telling me that I can just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll be saved. Yes, that's what the gospel says. So I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to change my life. I don't have to. No, you don't have to do anything. You really don't. Because if I add anything to this for your salvation, it's the gospel plus. Now, we do know, though, that when you are saved, born again, born of the Spirit from the inside, you're literally, literally born again, you will start living differently. You're born again. You now have life, as we'll see later in this passage, life in Christ. And what's that look like? Well, it's, it's something simple. You know, you, you start, you have a different appetite, if you would. 
where you formerly didn't have an interest in the word of God, now you have a curiosity. Uh, uh, you, you go to, you, you start finding yourself thinking differently. You start finding, now you're not trying to do different to get salvation. The result of salvation is you're starting to live different. And we get that mixed up sometimes. And we inadvertently say, well, if they're not doing this and this and this, you know, I don't know if they're even saved. Really? You don't get to make that call. Jesus even said, listen, that's not for you to decide. I will separate the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats. I have messengers. I have others that will do that in the end times, in the right time. For you and me, let's not say that we can just live the same old way and claim salvation. Let's recognize when we're born again, we want to know what that means. When I experience the love of God and forgive me, when he forgives me or whatever it was forgiven of my sins, I didn't even understand the concept of sin. I really didn't. I figured that people were bad and I was in the middle. There's some real bad people. Some of them got, went to jail. Some of them got shot. That's just, that's really bad. And then there's some really good people like grandma over here. And I'm just here in the middle somewhere. So all in all, I'm not in a bad spot. I just, you know, I feel that's just how it was. What I didn't realize is like when I experienced the forgiveness, my, I think something changed. I can't even now put it into clear description, but it was like this weight was taken off of me. Like I could, I could, had a sense of vitality, a sense of life. I, I thought it was because I was learning religion, but it wasn't. It was because I was literally born again and you were born again on the inside. And so now because I experienced this love, I'm like, what is this? What manner of love is this that, that I would be called his child? And so a certain element of curiosity, a, a certain things that are just more his work in me that I try to rationalize my expression, but it's him just drawing me close, drawing you closer to him because he's the one doing the work. And so guess what happens? Your language changes. You don't stop cussing because you're hanging around church people. Well, you, may, you might, be, that might be a good enough reason to, but ultimately, even in the workplace, you still drop those words every now and then, but you feel convicted. Not because somebody read off the acceptable adjectives that you can use now, but because you realize, man, I, just, that's just, that's, that's just kind of, I don't think I should say that. I don't think I should act that way. I don't think I should speak that way. I've been forgiven. God, you've done this in me. Always remember, you don't change to get salvation. There will be a change because of salvation. And it's not measurable. You can't just look around and go, ooh, should I do this? Should I do that? It's, it's, it's only expressed. When I say it's not measurable, I don't want to just think, well, I should be here and do there and do that and do this. Because see, that means I'm, if I do these things, I can clear my conscience and say I'm saved. But ultimately, you will be doing those things when you have this new life. It, it's, it's something that I think is so ingrained and, and so, so snuck into to contemporary Christian teaching, biblical teaching, that it's like, yes, but you have to do this. And no, you don't. But guess what? You will. My grandma, when I understood that she loved me, I was like 12, 13, and, and she was certainly a lot nicer than my parents, that's for sure, because they had all these rules and all this stuff. So I'd walk the six blocks to grandma's house. Because I could just sit there and chat with her. And sometimes she had cookies. And, you know, I mean, it was really, it was just more enjoyable. But sometimes she'd get up and say, like, all right, well, let's go help me with the dishes. Okay, okay, let's go do dishes. Woo! I, I literally, that was my attitude. Now, when my mom said, it's your turn to do the dishes, I'm, can we use paper plates? <laughs> I, I don't, you know, what was the difference? My perception, my realization was, that I knew my grandma loved me. And because I knew that love, I, I, I just, it was just different. How much more when we grasp the love of God? That we're now not trying to do something for God. We're experiencing the love of God. And it's an expression of our life. And that's why I say live out the love that is within you. Let that be an expression. And take some pressure off yourself. Don't try to do everything and be everything. So the truth I mentioned there's three things, truth, trouble, and transformation. The truth that we see in this text is so essential. We follow Christ because of who he is. Now, guess what? When you choose to do that, there is trouble. There's things that kind of just are a little difficult to work through. We see Paul, you know, in this situation. He chose 
to deal with this issue because he knew something was building. He was aware of the Jewish Gentile challenge. And he understood it was, he was to address it, not, not be, he wasn't the one in charge. He wasn't the one making the final decision. And so Paul was wrongfully accused. Paul was criticized. He was even ostracized because he stood for the truth. Because he was willing to, I believe, with kindness and compassion, with firmness and understanding, he, he addressed a hard issue. This generation that you and I live in has a real problem with confrontation. We have a, there's a real problem. Now, the, the problem is too much is done on the screen and not as done face-to-face. That's not the only reason. But it's really easy. Have you ever sent a text and then you read it after you sent it? You know, one of those mistakes which seem to be common. I know them for me. And then they receive it, but they don't reply. And then later it's like they may say something like, what? Because guess what? We all know this. You can't quite get a sense of what's being said just by sharing information. So because that's a little awkward, ooh, I don't know that they, I'll call them. So you call them. This is frequent. And then you hopefully bring clarity and with the voice and some emotion and some kindness and some somehow love being better expressed through the voice than the keyboard, you kind of work towards reconciliation or clarity. And it may even involve, you know what? Why don't we get together for coffee? And guess what? There's something different when you reconcile things face to face. Things can't always be reconciled with just changing, exchanging information. This generation doesn't understand. We're losing the art of reconciliation. It's an art. It really is. Now, understand, when I say generation, I'm not talking about the younger people. I'm talking about those of us alive at this time. Because some old people can be just as big a hassle as young people when it comes to screen time. It's got nothing to do with age. Confrontation is so important. Can you imagine how they had to work this out? I called Peter out to his face. It's like, yeah, be a man. Well, no, that's not it. It's not a testosterone zone overload. It was with kindness and compassion, but I had to deal with it. I had to, I had to move, move forward. I had to, we had to address this. And when we don't learn how to do it, we become soft and we, we don't stand for the truth. We start compromising. We start backing away. We let relationships go away. We don't want to deal with it. When you stand for the truth, you're going to find it's difficult but important. We live in a time when there's, I don't think there's any more confusing time than now. Well, what about World War I? What about World War II? What about this? Yeah, I, I, those weren't as confusing because they were sad but understandable because of World War. But now we're living in a time that's very confusing because it's all about what you want to be. Truth is not, it, it's almost like it's, it's, not, it's irrelevant. As long as you, you, we live in a time that it's being promoted through this, this government system, this school system, so many different things that are, that are being promoted in our world, you can be whatever you want to be. You can just be a different person, a different gender. You can be a different species right now if you want to be. No, you can't. You can't. And to be able to convey that, not in a, you know, hit him in the head type of way, but like, wait, 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 wait a minute. You're going to be, you identify as an animal? Okay, so let's just consider you got on this road, and this road's going to go here. So when you get there, what are you going to do? Well, I don't think, I don't feel it's going to go there. It will. The signs say Boise, you're going to end up in Boise. Do you understand what I'm saying? How is it that we can, who would have seen this? Who would have said 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, just think, 2023, you can be what you want to be. You can just be, no, you can't. How can we present, you know, a medical field? And I, I don't, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go there and then I'll regret it tomorrow or later. But anyway, seriously, how can this be that we would, we would castrate and mutilate Young children under the guise of gender selection. That we would allow a teen, preteen, to make a choice and their body to be permanently maimed, but yet we won't let them get a tattoo without their parents' permission. Can you tell me what's going on? Why is, why, why is the medical field complicit with it? I don't understand. I don't understand. 
but I'm going to stand for the truth. I'm going to somehow try to convey, this, is, this thing's got to be addressed. It can't just be so common that we can just say, well, it's their right to choose. It's not. It's not true. It is not true. And it's going to be harder and harder for you and me to stand for the truth, but stand for it. Paul went through a really tough time, but he stood, I believe, with a clear conscience, knowing that regardless of what men tried to present, he, with kindness and compassion, with clarity and fervency and passion, spoke for the truth and lived for the truth. Trouble, or truth, trouble, transformation. I believe you can see from not only our text, but other passages concerning this person, Paul, that he understood something that you and I quote, and we're realizing more and more. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Set you free. Paul experienced the liberty that Jesus brings. Think of his life. He was so driven. His Jewish religious residue, that residual belief that he started with, was washed away. And he literally experienced being a new creation in Christ. Paul used to be, remember, let's just consider his own summary. This is Paul's summary, if you would, as he, in another letter, is talking about this issue. You'll find it just over to your right in Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3. And we see how he's talking the same issue. He's addressing, it's about faith in Christ and and not our identity of the past and understanding what he has done. And he says in verse 4 of Philippians 3, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have more, have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. He's actually taken the argument and say, okay, listen, you're going to talk about, you know, doing right by your own effort. Let me go over my history. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. So here's what he's saying. I was born right. I was taught right. I lived right. I had it all. And I realized what God has done through the person Jesus Christ, all that became pointless. And not pointless in the sense that there's no purpose. It actually fulfilled its purpose. See, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. And so Paul, I mean, yeah, Paul is saying, listen, I had it better than anybody, really most. I had everything that you can't do by yourself, the, the, the ancestry and other things, and everything you can do by yourself. And I realized all that did was take me to realize that the law's purpose was to show you need a savior. It, according to Galatians 3, it, it was to teach you, it was to bring us to, it was a, like a tutor. It taught us that you need Jesus. Because there's nothing you can do to get right with God of your own effort. And so here he's like, man, this is how I used to be. Man, and, and, and he reveals this. I, I counted a loss, rubbish, of no value, he would say. Glance back with me in Galatians chapter 2 as we kind of come towards the end here today. In Galatians chapter 2, we see him continuing to speak in verse 19. The same thought, the same reality. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. See, so he, through the law, he understood it brought him to death. It fulfilled his purpose. It showed him that I can't get there on my own. So that was perfect. But then notice he also, that I might live to God. And so he's saying, I have been crucified with Christ. There wasn't four crosses, and one of them was Paul. Saul, you understand that. What's he conveying? Well, he's saying, I've been crucified with Christ. Why was Christ on the, on the cross? For your sins and for my sins. And he's seen my sins were what put him there. I'm crucified with him because it's my sins that put him there. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See what he's saying? Like that life 
I died to the law. That's what the cross was about. You can't do it on your own. But he didn't stay on the cross. He was placed in a tomb. His seemingly lifeless body sealed up, so to speak. But then the tomb was rolled, the, door, the stone was rolled away. He, he appeared bodily. He ascended bodily. He was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven, conquering death and hell. And, and Paul's like, I get it. It's not about what I can do. It's about what he has done. Life is in Christ from here forward. So now the life which I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul didn't see he loves me and I'll have to work my way to him. He's seen it literally as it's even worded in this context, a past tense. He loves me enough to die for me. It's done. It is finished. Not loves me if I stay close to him. Not loves me if I continue with him. It's a completed act. The resurrection accomplished salvation for humanity for whoever would believe. So awesome if you think about it because here Paul's like, man, I get it. So therefore, he says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Because here's the problem with this gospel plus. You make a mockery of the work of Jesus Christ. Because you're saying, and it's not, not that we're like posting this, well maybe, but anyway. You see what's being said? Jesus died for our sins, but we could have got in this way. So that means it's foolish for him to endure what he went through if we could have went around the other way and been picked the lock on the back door. It, it, it literally makes a mockery of the love of God. Instead of realizing there is no other means by which man can be saved, Period. Through faith in Christ is the only way. And there's not gospel plus do this and this. It's the gospel. If you add to it, it's no longer, it's bad news. It's like this. When I was young, I got a loan. Kim and I were going on our honeymoon. So that will be 40 years ago in May. And so I went to a place called Household Finance. Quit it. At Household Finance, which is just a, I think a gutter lending agency is my terms from it. But, but anyway, but I got a loan because we're going on a honeymoon, you know, and I want to have some cash flow and I didn't have it. And so, hey, no big deal. I sign on the line. Sweet. Money in hand. Everything's good. Roll out of town, heading to Sun Valley. Up in Sun Valley, sitting in the hotel room. I pull out the contract and start reading it. There was some fine print. And I'll tell you what. That contract wasn't good news. I don't know. It was like 36% interest rate or some stupid thing. Like, I might have been higher than that. I'm like, ah, gospel plus is throwing in a fine print that changes it from good news to bad news. Do not add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your life change because you have new life. Don't try to do it so you can get the life. We have Greg come back up. We're going to close out our time. Let's look, though, before we leave, and it actually, you know, in a closing thought at chapter 5. In chapter 5, we see in verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So, learning to walk in the Spirit. Peter, James, John, Paul, they're learning this. Peter heard from the Lord. He presented a powerful message at Pentecost right at the start of the, the, the church as we know it. But then he argued later in Acts chapter 10 when Jesus says, hey, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. Do you get that part? You can't say that. It doesn't, it doesn't work relationally. Not so. Try to, try to work. You do it work this way. Boss gives you instruction. You say, not so, boss. Lord means boss. He gets to call the shots. And, and Peter, 10 years later, is learning what it means to walk with Jesus, learning what it means to be led by the Spirit. I say that to encourage you because it is a process. Verse 22 of Galatians 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Will you stand with me? 
And let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you make it known to each one of us as we catch an overview, but yet you have personalized so many things. And really, for many of us, it's quite different things. You have individually emphasized specific things that we could know you more, that we could let go of these things that hold us back, these, the residual of who we used to be, that we know who we are currently. Help us, God, each one of us, to walk in truth, to be aware of this new life you've given us. And for anyone, if you're here today and you don't really know if you have this new life I speak of, it begins with just agreeing with God. It's really not complex. It's a truth you already know. The truth is you know you have done things contrary to God's design for your life. You've done things that you don't even want to tell people about or talk about. For you know they're not right. And the, the penalty for that sin, sinning, is pretty high because sin can't be in heaven. Therefore, the penalty, the wages of sin is death. But there's hope. For Jesus died for our sins, paid our sin debt. So ultimately, as you recognize your sin, you would say quite simply, God, I don't, I don't like this. I don't get this sin thing, but I know it's true. And I would ask you, Jesus, for forgiveness. I put my faith in you, and I don't even know how to do that for sure. I trust you, and yet I don't know you well enough to really trust you much. But I guess by faith I would trust you for salvation, for this new life. Give me this new life you speak of. Forgive me of my sins. Show me how to live from this day forward the life you've created for me, life you've designed for me, this life you've given to me. Guard me from the things that would distract me. Protect me from any form of religion. Teach me your truth in such a way that I fall deeper and deeper in love with you, God. May that be our request, all of us, Lord, that we would know you in a greater way, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. To you be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's sing to him. <laughs>